passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, last, I mentioned um, earlier that last week we began this uh, sermon series on the topic of, of spiritual health, and we were just asking the question, um, am I spiritually healthy? Um, that this is an important question to ask of ourselves to determine whether we are um, fooling ourselves or if we are actually healthy or mature in the faith. And so this morning we're going to continue that um, series looking at uh, specifically this, this topic of worship this morning, asking ourselves, do I live a life of worship? And I'll confess, um, this morning's topic is a whole lot more challenging uh, than last week. Last week we looked at the idea of, of uh, scripture and um, being people of God's Word, and this morning is, is more challenging than that um, in the sense that the Bible describes worship in a way that is essentially all-encompassing. Uh, all of life is a form of worship. And so last week, we were laying this foundation of the Scriptures, of, of God's Word, um, but before we even did that, we looked at why we were created. Why does God create humanity? Why does God create everything, really? And we saw that God has created all of creation, including us, for His glory. Or maybe to put it another way, as we talk about the glory of God, it is so that we might be people who worship Him. And yet, we might say, okay, well, how exactly do I do that? How do I live a life of worship to God? For, for that matter, maybe we're not too familiar with the idea of worship in general. We know it has something to do with God. We know it has something to do with, with religion. And yet, what exactly does it mean when we talk about worship? Does it just refer to singing? Does it refer to what we do when we gather together on, on Sunday mornings for church services? Does it refer to something, something different? And, and to make things even more complicated, you look at the Bible, and the Bible has a lot of different ways that it refers to worship. So there are some parts of the Bible that talk about worship, and they use it in a very narrow sense. So we have books of the Old Testament that talk about specific rules and regulations on how the people of Israel are to worship God through sacrifices and rituals. We have other books of the Old Testament, like the book of Psalms, that are just a collection of songs on, on how to worship or songs to worship God with. And then we look at other parts of the Bible, and we see that worship refers to all of life. It's something that's all-encompassing. So we begin at the very beginning of the Bible, the story of creation. Genesis 1 talks about how God creates everything. Then you get to Genesis chapter 2, specifically looking at God at work in the garden, of how he creates Adam and Eve and, and why he creates them. And then we, we look and we see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Notice those last two phrases or, or lines there, to work it and to keep it. And at first glance, you see that, and it says, okay, well, yeah, obviously that, that's referring to this agricultural sense, right? To work the garden, um, to, to keep the garden, seems to be like these agricultural tasks. And then you look at the rest of the Bible, and you begin to notice, maybe as you're reading through the Bible, that this phrase, to work it and keep it, comes up multiple times in the scriptures. And then you begin to see that every other time that it, the, there's this call to work and to keep, it's, it's referring to worship. One author puts it this way. 
When these two words occur together in the Old Testament, they refer either to Israelites serving God and keeping God's word, or to priests who keep the service of the tabernacle or the place of worship. So at the very beginning of the Bible, we see this description of people working and keeping, and it's a reference to worship. Why does God create Adam and, and by extension, Eve and, and the rest of humanity? It's for worship. God creates humanity. God creates every one of us, places humanity in the Garden of Eden so that they would worship him. And, and astoundingly, and I think very importantly for us, is the idea that this worship includes things that we rarely associate with the idea of worship. Worship involves working with your hands. Worship involves tending plants. Worship involves taking care of animals. It gives us this bigger view of what worship actually is. And with these vastly different definitions, even in the scriptures, of what worship is according to the Bible, here's what I want us to do this morning. First, I just want to lay the groundwork and say, okay, this is what the Bible says or means when it talks about worship. And then after that, I want us to look at some, some questions that we can ask ourselves of whether I am spiritually healthy when it comes to the idea of worship. So let's, uh, let's pray as we approach God's word. Pray one more time. Uh, would you pray with me? Lord, as we turn our attention to the idea of worship this morning, we do ask that you would, um, through your spirit, that you would enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth, that you would help us to be a people that yearn not just to worship you in the right way, but also to worship you with the right hearts. God, we ask that you would use our time in your word this morning to enable us to examine our lives, God, to, to honestly assess whether we are a people who are living out, of, living out our purpose in life, to, to be people who worship you. Help us, Holy Spirit, to, to be people who live for the glory of the Father because of the work of the Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I mentioned that this idea of worship is found throughout the scriptures and that that's the reason God created you, that's the reason God created me, uh, that's the reason God created all, uh, everything, that's the purpose of all of creation. So you look at, at Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1 makes this very clear, it says this, For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and notice this last part, and for him. So the reason why God creates everything is for him. And we might say, well, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that creation is for God? It means that God, God created everything so that creation might give him glory. It might make a declaration about the, gl the, glory, or the worthiness of God, the glory of God. And that's what worship is. It's, it's meant to give God praise. At its most basic level, worship is this, declaring the worth or value of someone or something. That's all that worship is. It's saying that this thing has worth, this person has worth, this, this person has value, and I'm declaring that it is a person or a thing of value. And you can, you can even hear that in the word, right? Worship comes from this old English word, worthship, with a T-H in there. It's, it's describing something that has worth, something that has value. You're, you're giving 
value or worth to something. And if that's what worship means, this idea of describing the the value of something or someone, then the question, do I worship? Or even the question of our sermon title this morning, do I live a life of worship, probably isn't the right question. The question isn't so much, do I worship? Do I live a life of worship? We were made to be worshipers. Of course we worship. The reality is you will never not worship. Everything you do in life is an act of worship. The question is, what do you worship? Who receives your worship? This is, this is getting at the heart of, of why God created us. If we were created to worship this God, we were created for him, but our hearts are consumed with the worship of, of other things, then we are wasting our lives. But how can we tell what we are worshiping? How can we tell what has captured our heart, what, what receives our value and our, and our worship and our worth in and, and our lives? How can we diagnose what, what holds that place of highest value in our lives? What is it that we worship? And this is really a question of the heart. We will worship the things that hold our hearts. Jesus actually gets at this. He describes the, the importance of a heart's priority. He's talking to his disciples in, in Matthew chapter 6, and he's talking about money. He's talking about possessions. And notice that Jesus, in this passage, he's addressing finances because he knows that finances or treasure hold the keys to our heart. That what we do with our money is inseparable from where we have placed our heart. So Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Notice this last phrase. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says, that where your heart is, that is where your treasure is. Your heart is, is tied to your treasure. Paul actually points out in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that the inverse is true as well. He tells us that the churches of Macedonia gladly contribute to the cause of the gospel because Jesus has captured their hearts. Jesus and the mission of God holds their hearts, and so they gladly give their finances for the sake of the gospel. You want to know what you worship? The first question you can ask yourself is by what, where does my money go? Where do I spend my money? That's, that's the first way, the first diagnostic of, of asking ourselves about uh, the place of our worship. Where do we spend our money? Our patterns of spending reveal what we worship. Let's keep looking at the heart because the heart is a, is a vast topic. Archbishop William Temple gives us another heart diagnostic to, to look at what exactly we worship. He once said this, your religion is what you do with your solitude. That's a profound statement. Here's what he's saying. Your imagination will point you to what you worship. So if you want to know what you worship, all you have to do is let your mind wander. And wherever it leads you might be the thing that you worship. So when you have time to let your thoughts wander, what do you daydream about? Do you daydream about a new job? 
Or do you daydream about more finances to make you, so, make you feel a little bit more secure? Do you replay past conversations or, or imagine conversations with others so that you can make a particularly good point in your mind? What has captured your imagination? Do you dream of being noticed by others? Where does your mind wander and run to for joy and comfort and peace in the privacy of your own thoughts? One final heart check. This comes from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. He, he, said, he points out that not only do we follow the path of our money, not only do we follow the path of our, our, our imagination, but we also can follow the path of our most uncontrollable emotions. What is it that makes you more upset than anything else? What leaves, leaves you depressed and defeated? What leaves you desperate and overworking yourself? When you follow your emotions, you tend to find what you worship. And it is crucial for us to do the hard work of looking at what we worship to see what has captured our hearts because we cannot truly hope to live a life of worship if our hearts are captured by someone or something other than God. And the only way to address false worship is to replace it with true worship. If we remove false worship from our lives, it will get replaced by someone or something. So let me use an example of that. Let's say that I spend way too much time watching TV. And I, I go through this and I, I, I look, well, I, I spend too much money on a cable subscription. I have, um, you know, my mind, I can never turn it off. I'm always thinking about what I could, you know, be watching. I spend way too much time doing this. I get upset when the kids change the channel. That doesn't actually happen. I'm okay with watching Bluey every now and then. <laughs> you should be too if you don't know what Bluey is. It's a great show. And, and let's say, let's say, well, I didn't expect to be talking about that this morning. Um, let's say I feel convicted about how much I watch Bluey. No, um, I, I feel convicted about how much I watch TV. And I remove it from my life, but I don't replace it with the worship of God. Something else will fill that void in my life. Oftentimes, it is a phone that will fill that void in your life. Not necessarily that you're doing anything wrong with it. You're just killing time. You're wasting time. If we do not replace false idols with the true God, we will, by necessity, because we are worshipers, replace false worship with more false worship. We are worshipers. We, never, we will never not worship. And so the key to not worshiping other things is to instead focus our attention, direct our attention to the person and work of Jesus so that we would be people who worship the only thing that is worthy of our worship, our risen King. The more that we turn our attention to the true God, the more that false gods lose their appeal. So if our patterns of life, our, our, our money, our imagination, our uncontrollable emotions, if, if those things reveal that we worship something or someone other than God, the beginning of a life of worship is to turn your attention to Jesus. And that's a bit of our foundation for this morning. So if we're going to live a life of worship, we have to first examine our hearts, follow the patterns of our lives to discern and determine where our heart's true affections lie.
And let's assume that we have done that. That's, that's a good start. But that's, that's not where we end. So for the balance of our time this morning, I just want to consider five further questions that we can ask ourselves about whether or not we are living a life of worship, whether or not we are spiritually healthy when it comes to the idea of being people of worship. The first question is this, do I worship God publicly by being a part of his church? Do I worship God publicly by being a part of his church? Spiritual health is certainly more than participating in a local gathering of believers, but I don't think you can say that it is less than that. You look at the testimony of scriptures, uh, of the scriptures, especially in the book of Acts, and you see that God places so much importance on the local church. The book of Acts chronicles the explosive growth of the church in the first century, and it's all according to God's promises. And Acts makes clear that the primary means through which God, through which God is at work in the world is through his church. So you look at the very first verse of the book of Acts, and you read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that seems like to be, you know, just a, a relatively um, unimportant verse. But notice what the author here is saying. He, he's saying that this book, the book of Acts, is a sequel. And if we're familiar with the New Testament, the book of Acts is actually a sequel to the book of Luke. They're written by the same guy. And Luke describes how God is at work in Jesus, through Jesus, in the, in the ministry of Jesus. And then we open to the book of Acts, and notice what it says. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. That word began is a really important one because it's setting the stage for what the book of Acts is going to be about. It's saying that by, by describing the gospel of Luke as just the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the implication is when you get to the book of Acts, you'll see that the, the ministry of Jesus is not done. And not only is it not done, that as you look at the book of Acts, you'll see that Jesus's ministry is now taking place in the local church. The Holy Spirit equipping his church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is important for our understanding of the church. Because whatever else it might mean, it makes it very clear that God has a very, very high view of the church. It's very important to God. Acts isn't so much about God doing amazing things through individuals. It's about God doing amazing things through his church. That Jesus is still at work in his church. That God uses the church to accomplish his purposes in the world. There's no plan B. God has no fallback plan other than the church. Whatever else the church is, the very first verse of the book of Acts makes it very clear that, that the church is God's vehicle for ministry in the world. You might be saying, well, what exactly does that have to do with worship? And I would say it has everything to do with worship. Because by participating in the local church, you're saying, I'm joining in what God is doing in the world, but also that I'm joining the gathering of God's people to worship this God. That's actually what the word church literally means. This word church just comes from this Greek word that refers to a gathering or assembly. That's what, before, before Christianity, when you would talk about the word church, you'd use the word church, it just referred to a gathering of people. 
And then you look in the book of Acts, you see that this idea of gathering is not just a gathering of random people. It's actually a gathering that God brings together. Acts chapter 18 makes that very, very clear. God is talking to Paul, reveals to Paul what his church is. He says this, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. The fascinating thing about this is that Paul has just entered into this city. There's not a church there yet. And God assures Paul that he can do faithful ministry in this city, the city of Corinth, because there are many people in this city who belong to God. Even though they do not believe yet, they are his people. Because God is the one who gathers his people together in the church. God alone is the only one who can bring people into his family. So we read in Acts chapter 2, these words. Praising God, this is the people, the church. They're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice, as we're looking at the church, this is something that's corporate, it's not private, it's done together because the church is God's people that he has gathered together. And God is the one who is doing that work. Day by day, God is adding to their number those who are being saved. So as we're talking about this idea of worship, we first have to look at our relationship with the local church. Am I spiritually healthy? What are my habits? What are my attitudes when it comes to the church's gatherings on Sunday? Do I see this as an important part of worshiping God, of living out my calling in life? Do I regularly gather with God's people? And when I gather, where is my mind at? Am I actually worshiping? Is my heart fully engaged? It's important for us to not just attend on a Sunday, but have I committed to being a part of God's body, his people, the local church? That's our first question, this idea of a public gathering for worship. If that's crucial, though, then I would also argue that the same is true of private worship. That's the second diagnostic question that we have this morning. Do I worship God privately through the practice of spiritual disciplines? I think it's, um, it's intentional on God's part that if you look at the scriptures, you'll notice that there's not a clear description or command of what it looks like to worship God privately. There's not a description of this is how you worship him and this is what you must do. And I think that's very intentional because private worship, spiritual disciplines will necessarily look different for each of us based off of our temperament and also about our season of life. It's going to look different for different ones of us, and it will look different for you in various seasons of your life than it will in other times. And yet, it is assumed in the scriptures that public devotion in the gathering of believers is mirrored or complemented by a personal devotion to the Lord. So just consider a few examples of what this might look like. Matthew chapter 6. We talked about Matthew 6 earlier. You look at Matthew chapter 6, and you'll see that there are references to spiritual disciplines. There's this this assumption of these spiritual disciplines. Jesus actually says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The implication is that you are going to do these things. It's a part of following God. 
You look at, at the book of Psalms. I, I think of, of Psalms when I think of worshiping God privately. It's a collection of songs. And there's to be songs, sung uh, corporately, but sometimes you can sing them privately. Psalm chapter 1 describes the, the blessed person this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You want to know what it means to be blessed? It means that you meditate on the scriptures day and night. This is a, a person, a woman who is, is committed to pursuing God as God has revealed himself in the scriptures. This is, this is the man who makes a concerted effort to know God, to worship God on his own, not just when gathered with other believers. Many of us are familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. What lands Daniel in the lion's den? It's a commitment to private prayer. There's this um, nefarious plot from these pagan counselors. They, they want to get rid of Daniel, and they know that one of the ways that they can get rid of him is by his commitment to his God. And so they actually convince the, the Persian king to pass this law outline, outlawing prayer to any god but the Persian king. And notice what happens in Daniel chapter 6 right after Daniel becomes aware of this decree. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel is so committed to, worship, to worshiping the Lord in prayer that it will not be changed even when it becomes illegal. It's just a regular practice of Daniel. It's the same thing that we see from Jesus. Jesus has this commitment to private prayer as well. Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray, as we see in Luke chapter 5, as well as in other parts of the Gospels. Another aspect, not just meditating on God's Word or praying, another aspect is for those of you who might have kids in the home, we see that worship is something that should become a part of family life. Specifics are not given as to what exactly this looks like, but notice the practice of worship of the family is assumed in Psalm 78. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. This idea of worshiping as a family in the book of Deuteronomy is tied to the, the worship of God, period. Every single person as you're worshiping God. Notice what Deuteronomy says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And all these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." The last few things that are described there are basically saying every facet of your life should be based on, dedicated to who this God is, and passing that information on to the next generation. The worship of God should encompass your entire life. 
And so we ask ourselves, well, what exactly does my private life, the private practices that I uh, worship God in, what do those say about my spiritual health? Am I worshiping God in private, whatever it may look like? Am I meditating on God's word? Am I pursuing him in regular prayer? If I have children at home, am I teaching them to worship God by worshiping the Lord with them? Uh, a few um, years ago, I was, um, our, our family was reading um, this, this book called The New City Catechism. And it's a, a question and answer and descriptions of how we worship God um, and how we teach our kids the faith or even how we, we teach ourselves the faith. And I, I think it's in the, the introduction to that book. Don't quote me on this. Um, but uh, Tim Keller is, is a pastor, and he describes the importance of catechisms um, for his own kids. And uh, he, he describes this time when his, his son was, was three or four. I think I've told this story before. Um, kid, uh, his son was three or four, and uh, he was at uh, preschool, and he was staring out the window just looking outside. And uh, his preschool teacher comes up to him and says, Hey, what are, you, what, are you, what are you thinking about, or what are you doing? And he said, I'm just thinking about God. And uh, the teacher's like, oh, okay, what are you thinking about God? And son just continuing to stare off in the distance says, about how he's the creator and sustainer of all things. This three-year-old. And so then the, the preschool teacher comes back uh, to, to Tim Keller and says, I think your son might be a genius. And it's like, what, what makes you say that? It's, well, because he was meditating on the fact that God is the creator and sustainer of all things in preschool. And, and Tim Keller laughs, and, and the teacher's like, well, what's going on? Um, why are you laughing? He's like, oh, he has no idea what that means. <laughs> it's just, we as a family go through this catechism, and that's the answer to one of the questions about who, who God is. You know, who, who is God? He's the creator and sustainer of all things. So our son doesn't actually know what that means, but we've given him the language to understand what does it mean that God is God. Family worship is a vital part of spiritual health. What do your private practices say about your spiritual health? Let's look at another diagnostic question concerning worship. It's this, do I worship God by walking, or another way of, of saying that is by living worthy of the gospel. One of the reasons why God saved us is so that we would live holy lives. Last week as we were starting this sermon series, we looked at Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi, and we saw that one of the reasons why God is at work in his people is so that they might bear fruit of righteousness. Consider these words again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God's desire for you is that you would bring him glory by bearing fruit, by living a life of righteousness. The book of 1 Thessalonians puts it this way. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, or another way of saying that is your holiness. 
one of the reasons or one of the ways that we worship God is to increasingly become more and more like this God. To grow in holiness. To be more like Jesus. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at one of the ways that we can d- diagnose our spiritual health is by looking at whether we are producing fruit or, or works in our life, that we are serving other with, others with good works. And we look at the book of Titus, and we look at Titus, and we see that God saves his people so that they might be zealous for good works. That we are a people who are passionate about bearing fruit, about looking more and more like Jesus. So one of the ways that we worship God is to increasingly become more and more like this Jesus. What are our habits? The way we talk, the way we act, the way we think, what do those reveal about the glory of God? Do we worship lives worthy of the gospel? One more um, diagnostic question about worship. We touched on this briefly But I want to to take a few moments to intentionally consider it because it's a very important topic in in the New Testament, especially according to Jesus. So it's the topic of money. Do I worship God with my finances? If your financial priorities reveal your heart, do you like what you see? Do you worship the Lord with your money? Or do you worship someone or something else? Martin Luther was a theologian in the 1500s, and he once said, there are three conversions that are necessary in the Christian life, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. The conversion of the heart that we actually have to desire and long for this Jesus, the conversion of the mind, we have to change the way that we think, and the conversion of our purse, the way we spend our money. And I know the topic of money can be a very uncomfortable one in the church, especially because there are plenty of churches, plenty of pastors that mask discussing money as as a way to abuse it for their own greed. And yet, at the same time, it's also true that being a follower of Jesus entails following him with how you handle your money. This is abundantly clear in the New Testament. The New Testament says that there's no longer this requirement of giving a tithe or or giving 10% of your income if you're going to follow God, be a faithful follower of the people of God. And yet, the response from the church isn't to give less than that, but it's actually to give more because giving in the New Testament, is a form of worship. That's Paul's main point in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul points out that healthy Christians worship God with their money, and that's true of the churches in Macedonia. That's what he looks at in chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, and it's Paul's heart, his desire, that the church in Corinth would do the exact same thing in chapter 8, verses 8 through 15. And Paul makes this connection between giving and worship in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, for the, mis- for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also the overflowing and many thanksgivings to God. We're going to come back to that verse here in a moment. By the approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So here's what Paul is saying in the midst of this context. He's saying that contributing financially to the mission and the needs of the church is first 
meeting the needs of others. That's the first half of verse 12, what we looked at there. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. So it meets the specific needs of others in the church. But he says that's not it. Giving is not just a a way to meet other needs. It is also the overflowing of thanksgiving to God. In other words, that your giving is an expression of gratitude to God for what he has done in the gospel. And then he keeps going. That's what we see in verse 13. Paul says that financial giving, quote, comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, what he's saying is what you do with your money is making a declaration about what you believe about the gospel. This is going to sound harsh, but I think it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. If I am someone who gives stingily, does that mean that my heart doesn't fully grasp what I've been given in the gospel? There are no commands in the scriptures, in the New Testament, on how much we should give. The closest thing we see is in chapter 9, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians. Paul says that no one should give under compulsion. Unfortunately, a lot of people use that as an excuse for not giving. But that's missing the point of what Paul is saying. He's not saying, hey, if you don't have a cheerful heart, if, you, if you're giving under compulsion, then you're off the hook. He's saying, if you don't have a cheerful heart, then you, have you really looked at what Jesus has done for you? Have you reflected on the magnificence of what God has done at the cross? Paul actually roots our giving in the giving of Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That Jesus, in the gospel, in the incarnation, he leaves the glory, the majesty of heaven behind, and he becomes a servant. And he does it all so that he might give you the unfathomable blessings of God. Not financial blessings, but the blessings of a life forever with him. And Paul is arguing that our giving should be rooted in the giving that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. A call to spiritual health is this call to examine how we use our money, how we use our finances. If we're not giving anything to the mission of God, what does that say about our hearts? About our understanding of the gospel. And if this is an area of weakness for us, the the answer is not to feel guilted into giving. The the answer instead is to to look at Jesus, to to gaze upon Jesus and, and all that he has given us in the gospel, and then look at our finances and say, is there some way that I can begin to change to include this part of my life in the worship of this God? And maybe that means just like creating a five-year plan. Going from 0% to 10% or whatever God calls you to do is, is very daunting. But if you, what if you went from 0 to 1% this year and then did it again the next year and the next year and the next year? Maybe you've been giving for a long time. And that's just a part of, of, of your budget, and yet you haven't reevaluated, you haven't looked at, reflected upon what is God calling you to do with your finances. And this is really, really hard especially in the midst of inflation where you might have have received a small raise and yet the, the cost of living has just expanded. But what if God is calling you to grow in this area of worship? 
What if a budget meeting is an act of worship? How is God calling us to worship Him with our finances? As we examine our finances, are we spiritually healthy? One final question to ask ourselves, and and I think this is an important one because it's explicitly addressed in the New Testament just as Jesus addresses the importance of giving when it comes to worship. Do I worship God with how I conduct myself and my vocation? Do I worship God with how I conduct myself in my vocation? Your job is more than just a job. Your job is a vocation. It's a calling. One pastor puts it this way, a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than for yourself. And for every single one of us here, whether we are students or we are in the workforce or we are retired or we are homeschool moms or we're stay-at-home moms, whatever it may be, you have a vocation. You have a calling that you have received from God. Even if you don't have an official job, you have a vocation, something that God has called you to, something that he is calling you to do for his glory. And it might not be what you want it to be. You might actively be looking for a different job. You might be in the midst of that as you're looking for another job, and yet in the midst of that waiting, we are still called to worship God in our calling. All of us have a calling. All of us have a responsibility to God for what we do with our lives. Consider Paul's words. He's talking to his servants in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What a fascinating way to end that statement. Paul is saying that whatever your vocation may be, whether you are a teacher or a mechanic or a contractor or a manager or a retail clerk or an accountant, whatever that is, God has asked you to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In other words, each and every day, you have an opportunity to worship God, not only in how you conduct yourself in your work, while you were at work, but also to worship God with the very work itself. I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers. It's it's an indictment, I think, on on much of the modern-day church. It says this, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. That is what it looks like to work heartily for the Lord and not for, as for men, that you are serving the Lord Christ. You absolutely worship God when you are a moral example at work, when you are a person of integrity. But students, you also worship God when you try your hardest on an exam. And when you study leading up to that exam so that you can do as well as you possibly can on that test as a way to worship God. And you worship God in your work, if you're in the workforce, 
not just when you do your best at work because it will lead to pay raises or promotions. Those things sometimes happen. But when you do your best at work because you know that's what God wants you to do. Contractors, you worship God when you don't do shoddy work, not just because you know that's going to affect your business and future prospects of of employment. That's certainly true but because it's an opportunity to worship God with the unique gifts that God has given to you. The way he has shaped you in a way that he has shaped no one else. And this is true for retirees too. That those who have retired, you might not have an official job anymore, but you'd still have a vocation. And I think about the last seven, eight months of active work in this space. And whenever I've been here and I've seen those who have retired from full-time employment and the amount of work they've poured into this space, I'm just in awe. I'm seeing people worship. That they understand that retirement is not an excuse to just check out and do whatever they want. This past week, um, since it's the beginning of the year, I was um, looking at one of our retirement accounts. It's a part of the, you know, the once a year checkup at the beginning of the year that the company has us do. And as I was looking at that, I noticed that they had this new feature. It was a really weird feature. Um, but one of the features is that um, you could now have an, an icon for your different accounts, which is, you know, super cool. And as I was looking at that, um, I I noticed, so, well, let me explain. So, uh, you know, if you have an investment account for a new car, your icon is a car. And if you have an investment account, like you're raising money um, for your kids, then you can have a picture of a child or, you know, a house and and all those kind of things. Just saving money for um, a rainy day, you have an umbrella, that kind of thing. And you look at this default icon for the retirement account, and the default icon was an umbrella on a beach. And I got irrationally angry. (laughs) Talk about uncontrollable emotions. Because that icon says a whole lot about our culture's view of retirement. It's as though there's this, this sense that in our culture, retirement is now where we have permission to make life all about me, and I can just go sit on a beach somewhere. And yet, when we look at, at retirement, life, life does change. Your calling changes. And I'm not at all suggesting that being a snowbird is wrong, and after this past week, I think the only thing wrong would be not taking me with you. <laughs> but I do think that that icon serves as a very strong warning to each of us when we enter into retirement, whether that is now or as if it's decades from now, to ask ourselves, are we worshiping God in our retirement? Or are we worshiping ourselves? Are we still contributing? Are we still seeing our lives, our vocation, our calling as an act of worship? Are we spiritually healthy? How do we worship God in our vocation? 
you know, worship encompasses all of life, and we have to ask ourselves, do we live a life of worship? Do we worship God publicly with the corporate gathering of God's people? Do we worship God privately with the practice of spiritual disciplines like prayer, Bible reading, family worship, more? Do we worship God in the way that we live our lives, a life that is worthy of the gospel, growing in holiness and Christ-likeness? Are we worshiping God with our finances? Are we worshiping God with the way that we work? Paul, writing to the church in Rome, reminds us that worship is a way of life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.